0: chapter 26 this morning, and we're going to take a big swing at a big chunk of chapter 27. We're actually going to get all the way through the end of verse 13. It's going to seem like you're drinking from a fire hose because we're covering three times or four times as many verses as we have been known to cover in a Sunday morning. Acts chapter 26. We have reached the sort of climax of the book of Acts. And since we're beginning chapter 27, I want to pause for just a second to remind you of where we're at in the book of Acts as far as the storyline of the book goes. We have gone through Paul's defense to Agrippa, and the end of chapter 26 is sort of the the zenith, the climax of the book. It is the intellectual, the theological, the the apologetic zenith of the book. It's the high-water mark. And from the beginning of chapter 27 down through the end of chapter 28, Luke is sort of bringing us in for a landing. You know how you fly on a commercial jet sometimes, you get up to cruising altitude, and then all of a sudden you can hear the tone of the engines change, and forgive me some of you pilots who are here this morning, because I know we have a lot of them, but it's like you take the, the plane off of cruise control, and you can feel yourself start to descend, you feel like you're going slower, and the tone of the engines change, and you know then you're beginning your descent. If you ever fly from Spokane to Seattle, then you know you Climb like the Dickens and you get up there long enough to get a bag of peanuts and then that tone comes in and you begin your descent into Seattle. That's what we're doing in chapters 27 and 28. We're kind of coming in for a landing in Rome. Now that doesn't mean that there's nothing exciting left in chapter 27 and 28. Oh no, quite the contrary. Chapter 27 is all about a boat ride with lots of danger, lots of difficulty, lots of destruction. We have some tense moments ahead of us in chapter 27. And in chapter 28, as Paul begins his arrival in Rome, I want you to look, for instance, at the beginning of chapter 27. It's, it's all about a boat ride. Chapter 27, you can just remember that. This is a boat ride. 27, verse 1, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and then they embarked. Look at the last sentence of chapter 27. It's in verse 44. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. And everything in between verse 1 and verse 44 is some very tense moments. And then look down in chapter 28, verse 14. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. Now that's where we've been going for the whole book of Acts. We're not going to get to chapter 28, verse 14 this morning, but I want you to know that's what's ahead. That's, remember I told you at the very beginning what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts tells us primarily two things. Number one, how it is that the gospel went from Jerusalem to the heart of the Roman Empire in about 30 years' time, and how the church went from being an exclusively Jewish church to being a largely Gentile church. So by the time we get to Acts 28, we finally arrive to the place where we set out for at the beginning of the book of Acts, which was Rome. Now, before we begin chapter 27, we have to ask a very important question, because there's one question that kind of comes up, and as I was reading through it several times this week and studying to prepare for this morning, there was one question that kind of kept hitting me in the face, and this was it. Why so many details about a, a boat ride? Why so many details about a boat ride? Why a chapter and a half about this one voyage from Caesarea... To Rome. Why does Luke give us so many details? And it is an exacting eyewitness account. Listen, he tells us the names of people, the ports of call, the islands that they pass, on what side of the island they pass, the wind direction. At some point, he tells us even the depth of the water at one point of the journey. Why such exacting detail? Especially when we read in other places in the book of Acts that Luke will cover a whole journey of Paul, sometimes in just a phrase. For instance, we'll read something like, He passed through the regions of Asia and came to Ephesus. You wonder, passed through the regions of, of Asia? What happened in Asia? That's a lot of land time. That's a lot of traveling. That's a lot of people. He just passed through the regions and came to Ephesus. One phrase. Do you remember back at the end of chapter 24? Luke says, after two years had passed. And you're wondering, what happened for two years of Paul's life? He just blows over two years. Then we get a chapter and a half of exacting details about this one journey from Caesarea to Rome. Why? What does the Spirit of God, through Luke, want us to learn from this chapter? What is it that you and I are supposed to pick up from all these details and from this boat ride? Luke could have just brushed over it and said, They sailed from Caesarea, had some difficulty, landed in Rome, and here's what happened in Rome for two years. But Luke doesn't do that. He gives us all the details of this one-way journey from Caesarea to Rome. Why all the details? Well, let me suggest three things that you're going to see in the next three or four weeks as we work our way through chapter 27. First of all, the Spirit of God wants us to realize how it is that Jesus' promise to Paul back in chapter 23, verse 11 came to be fulfilled. Do you remember what Jesus promised Paul back in chapter 23, verse 11? Don't fear, Paul. Just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, what? so you will also testify for me at Rome. And so what we're supposed to understand is how that promise came to be fulfilled. Listen, if you think back to all of the things that have stood in the way of that promise ever being fulfilled, Luke has given us all of that. That's what all of the detail in the last few chapters of the book of Acts is all about. All of the things that sort of got thrown in Paul's way And from a human perspective, from a worldly or earthly perspective, just judging it from the the natural standpoint of any man, reading this story and reading this account, you'd say, there's no chance that that promise would come to be fulfilled acts chapter twenty three I mean, he He got into Jerusalem. He was beaten by the crowd, almost to death, rescued by Lysias. Then the crowd got upset, and he went in to the barracks and Lysias almost scourged him. It was only his Roman citizenship that kept him from being scourged, but he would have been scourged and likely could have died from such a scourging and After that, there was a plot on his life that his nephew foiled, and then they snuck him out of of Jerusalem under the cover of night and he goes to Caesarea and there is a miscarriage of justice and he sits and rots in a prison for two years waiting for his case to come up and then Festus finally hears his case and tries to throw him under the bus for political reasons to the Jews trying to get Paul just out of Jerusalem and probably would have been killed and that didn't happen and so then he has his trial heard before Agrippa and he gets blown off and nobody cares about him and then they ship him off to to Rome and he gets on board the ship and everything goes sideways. Nothing goes like it should go. He finally lands on the island of Malta and he's bitten by a viper. And you would look at that all and say, what are the odds that this man would ever make it to Rome alive? Humanly speaking, the odds are nil. Listen, dirty little secret. Festus and Agrippa shipped him off to Rome at the worst shipping season of the year. The most dangerous time of the year. Now's the time. We're not going to wait till spring. You you go. Get out of here. We want rid of you, rid of your case, and they ship him off onto the high sea, the most dangerous period of the year. Looking at it humanly, we would say there's no chance that that promise of Jesus in 23 verse 11 would ever come to pass. And Luke wants you to see, in spite of all of the difficulty, here's what you're going to learn. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. All circumstances and all situations aside, When God gives His Word, He does it. He fulfills it. Because when He purposes something, when He plans something, when He designs to do something, He does it. And His purposes must and will be fulfilled always. He cannot be thwarted. Luke's going to show us that. Second thing we're going to see in this uh, chapter 27 and 28 is how God delivers His people. How God delivers His people. Sometimes He allows us, friends, to sink all the way to the depths and the very bottom of the very bottom and the worst of situations when things look most desperate. And it's then that God sort of plucks us out. And we can see the hand of God orchestrating all of this to accomplish his purposes all the way through chapter 27. And then the third thing you're going to see is something about the character of Paul. Because listen, it is when things go sideways, it is when circumstances are bad, it is when things are at their worst, that's when you find out the true character of a man. You realize that? It's easy to keep the veneer up when things are going good, but when things begin to fall apart, that's when you see what people are really made of. That's when the true character begins to shine through. So here we get a glimpse at the character of the Apostle Paul during an extreme crisis, and you're going to see him shine like you would never have imagined because it's just it's brilliant what God shows us about this man in the midst of this crisis. So the end of chapter 26, with that brief introduction, we'll look at it. The end of chapter 26, after Paul's address to the to Agrippa and all of the people present, verse 30 says, The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. That's the way you adjourned a trial. That was the equivalent of casting down a gavel in that time. When the king stood up and the people who were up at the front hearing the case, when they rose to their feet, that was it. No prosecution, no defense, no closing arguments. The trial is over. The defense is over. The, the ceremonies are done. And so Agrippa and Bernice and all of them stand up together, bringing the whole thing to a conclusion. Agrippa has just blown Paul off. Do you think you can convince me to become a Christian? Such a short period of time, just a few words. Think you can convince me? Festus called him crazy. Do you remember that from last week? Paul, you're nuts. You're insane for believing such idiocy. Why would you honestly believe that? And Agrippa is done with it. They're all done with it. They stand up. They've heard enough. They know he's crazy. They know he's. He's probably delusional, and so they're done with the proceedings. And they stand up. Verse 31 says, And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Now look, Festus might have thought Paul was crazy. Agrippa probably concurred with Festus' assessment and thought that Paul was a bit pushy because Paul was trying to sort of push him into a corner and make him make a decision. So Festus thought he was crazy. Agrippa thought he was pushy. But neither of them thought he was a criminal. This man's doing nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. And you realize that by the time we get to this point in the book of Acts, that is a matter of public record now. It was absolutely a, a, a laughing stock that he was still in chains. You understand that? You know why? Because when Lysias sent Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, he wrote the letter to Felix, and you remember what Lysias said? I find nothing in him worthy of death or imprisonment. And then he gets there and he stands trial before Felix. Felix didn't punish him because he was innocent, and he knew that. Festus had a trial before Paul, or Paul had a trial before Festus. Festus didn't punish Paul because he knew Paul was innocent. That was a matter of public record. And now before Agrippa, Agrippa stands up and said, he's done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. He's an innocent man. Everybody's testified to that. Now you might ask, why in the world then do you not set him free? If you know he's innocent and everybody knows he's innocent, it's a matter of public record. No valid accusations have been brought against him. Why don't you drop the chains and set him free? Verse 32. Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now here's the irony of that statement. Who did Agrippa say that to? Festus? Whose fault was it that Paul appealed to Caesar in the first place? Festus? Do you remember what Festus, trying to do the Jews a favor, said, would you like to go up to Rome and stand trial on these charges? Right? I'm going to push you under the bus for political expediency. Get rid of you. And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman citizen. I appealed to Caesar, and Festus said, Then to Caesar you shall go. Now Agrippa says to Festus, If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he might have been set free. Festus is thinking to himself, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, that was a stupid thing he did. It was his fault that Paul had appealed to Caesar to begin with. I found out my studies this last week, this is kind of interesting, legally, Agrippa and Festus could have set Paul free. They could have done that legally. By the letter of the law, because they knew he was innocent, because no valid charges had been brought and all of that had been proved in court, even though Paul had appealed to Caesar, Festus and Agrippa could have set him free. Legally, they could have done that. But they didn't. And you know why? Because once a Roman citizen appealed to Caesar, it was now between Paul and Caesar. And for Agrippa and Festus to sort of insert their nose into Caesar's legal documents, legal uh, cases and set one of them free that had appealed to Caesar, that would have been seen as an insult to Caesar, who was Nero. And if you're Festus and you're Agrippa, you know one thing for sure. You do not make the Caesar mad. So even though they could have set Paul free, they're not going to touch that, because that would be an offense to Caesar. And furthermore, they're happy to just kick him out of Caesarea, send him off to Rome, and get rid of his case once and for all, because he has been an albatross ever since he got arrested in Jerusalem, way back in chapter 21. Now, for the sake of convenience, as we begin chapter 27, I've divided it into two parts. Verses 1 to 8, the voyage begins with difficulty. And then verses 9 through 13, the voyage becomes dangerous. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Just a couple of notes here for a second. They wouldn't just send Paul off all by himself with a bunch of soldiers protecting him, just one prisoner. That would be a waste of taxpayers' dollars, and we all know how government hates to waste taxpayers' dollars. So they would keep the citizens and the prisoners in the city that they were being held with until they had a large group of prisoners to ship off with them all together. And then they would send them under guard of of Roman troops off to Rome. So they're waiting there. That's why Paul's been in Caesarea this whole time, waiting for enough people to get together. They can ship off a bunch of uh, prisoners with them. They turned Paul over to a centurion who was in charge of a hundred troops. He had a hundred troops at his disposal. A centurion of the Augustan cohort. The Augustan cohort was a way of, of designating which, uh, which group of troops centur- the centurion Julius was in charge of. And the designation Augustus indicates that it was part of Caesar's regiment. So this was another way of saying Caesar's cohort. It's very possible and even likely some have suggested historians that Julius was one of Nero's bodyguard, kind of like his secret service, and that he had come down from Rome to Caesarea on special mission. He was returning back, and Festus saw it as an opportunity with those troops to send Paul and some other prisoners back to Rome as well. So he hands Paul over into the care of Julius, who was one of Caesar's top men. So these are highly trained, highly trusted men of integrity that Paul and the other prisoners are turned over to. Look at verse 2. And embarking in an Andromedan Adramatan ship. I've been struggling all week with how to pronounce that, and I don't think that any of you would like to be up here trying to pronounce that. That's an Adramatan, whatever you want to call it, ship. And it got its name from the port that it sailed out of. Adramat was the name of the port that it sailed out of. So Julius in Caesarea knows that, okay, here's a ship that's headed back along the coast of Asia. These were smaller ships. At this time of the year, they would sort of hug the coast. The coastline. They would go along the coast of Asia, staying close to the coast, sailing even when it was difficult, but before all the sailing stopped. Now, I included in your notes for this week a little piece of paper. Did everybody get one of those? got a little map on the back of it. So as we're going through this, you'll kind of be able to track the Apostle Paul and where he's at. So that might kind of be helpful for you to look at as we're going through the different journey, the the different ports on the journey that he's taking. They get in an dramatian ship and head up the coast of Asia. And Luke says, We put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now there's a little tiny word in verse 1 of this chapter that appears in verse 1 that we haven't seen for a long time. Do you see what it is? It appears throughout the rest of the book. It's that little word, we. We haven't seen that since chapter 21. What does that indicate to us? Luke is with him, so it's Luke and Paul, and here we find out that they were joined by one other friend. His name was Aristarchus. Does that name sound familiar to you? Probably sounds familiar to you. Aristarchus. Does if you remember back in Acts chapter 19, you remember when they were in Ephesus and Demetrius the silversmith got the people riled up in a big in a big uh, fury over Paul and the lack of income from the temple idols that everybody crowded into the theater and they began shouting out, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" And it says in Acts chapter 19 that they grabbed Aristarchus and Gaius. Paul's traveling companions, and they dragged them down into the middle of the theater. So here's Aristarchus. This is the one that was with Paul in Ephesus. He traveled back with Paul to Jerusalem and to Caesarea. He's probably been with Paul on and off for the last two years. The three of them are setting off sail for Rome. So you have Paul, you have Luke, and you have Aristarchus. Now my inquiring mind, since I'm a details guy, I like to ask questions like, where are Timothy and Titus and where are these other guys that we know traveled with Paul? Well, we don't know where they're at, probably on mission or off serving in the churches somewhere, maybe visiting family. Maybe they're going to take the land route and meet Paul in Rome. But Paul does have dispatched with him Dr. Luke, who's the author of the book, Aristarchus, as his friend from Ephesus and from Macedonia. Now, here's an interesting question. Why would they allow Paul's friends to travel with him? He's a prisoner of Rome. How does a prisoner warrant having his friends travel with him when he's on board the ship being guarded by soldiers? How does that happen? Well, some have suggested that Aristarchus and Luke were simply designated as Paul's slaves because in the Roman system, a Roman citizen, even though he was a prisoner and even though he was on his way to trial, he could take his slaves along with him. Some have suggested maybe Aristarchus and Luke simply were designated as slaves and they were allowed to travel with Paul. It's possible that Luke and Aristarchus both just bought travel fare on board the ship so that they could be with Paul. It's possible that Dr. Luke may have signed on as the ship's physician and got fare for free, which people did in those days. I think what happened was Paul, because everybody knew he was innocent, Julius knew he was innocent, Festus knew he was innocent, everybody knew he was innocent. He was no danger. He was no criminal. I think Paul just got special treatment. They allowed his friends, Aristarchus and Luke, to travel with him and to attend to his needs. Because in those days, remember I told you how governments hate to waste taxpayers' money? In those days, if you were a Roman prisoner, you didn't get three square meals a day and a clean change of clothes every morning. You didn't get that. You didn't get any creature comforts. You didn't get any provision unless you had a friend or a family member who would visit you in prison and bring you provisions, bring you food, bring you water, and bring you clothing. If you didn't have that, you didn't get any of those things. So it's likely that they allowed Aristarchus and Luke to come to attend to Paul's needs to help provide for him on the journey. They are friends who are coming along. And listen, this whole thing, I think, is a testimony to friendship. Listen to this carefully. Luke and Aristarchus knew well how dangerous this journey was going to be. They knew that what time of the year it was. They knew the storms that would come in on the sea in that time of the year. They knew this was going to be difficult. They knew it was going to be dangerous. They knew they were placing their own lives at risk by going with the Apostle Paul. But why does, why did they go with Paul? Why did Luke and Aristarchus go with Paul? You say they're men of integrity. They're good friends. That's true, but friends, do you realize that this says, the fact that Luke and Aristarchus were willing to go with Paul says as much about Paul as it does about them. Do you understand that? Luke and Aristarchus could have said, look, Paul, we'll take the land route. We'll go up, around, across. We'll get on the Via Ignatia. That'll take us right into Rome. We'll see you there in the spring. God willing, God speed, God protect you. We'll pray for you, but we'll meet you there in the spring. Could have said that, but they didn't. They said, Paul, even though it's dangerous, even though it's difficult, even though your life is at risk, even though likely this is going to mean suffering and danger, we're going to go with you. And they did. And you know why? Because Paul was that type of friend. Do you know why Aristarchus and Luke were willing to risk their lives for Paul? It's because they knew that Paul was willing to risk his life for them. Back in Acts chapter 19, when they dragged Aristarchus and Gaius down into the theater, what did Paul do? He tried to go into the theater when the crowd was going nuts. And the disciples of the Lord in Acts chapter 19 had to keep Paul out of there. Saying, no, you go into that crowd, you're the one they want. If you go in there, they'll tear you apart. And Paul knew the crowd is likely going to tear Gaius and Aristarchus apart. And he wanted to go down into the middle to take the heat and the hostility and the suffering so that his friends wouldn't have to. And even the Asiarchs, the official religion keepers in the city of Ephesus, had to beg Paul not to go into the crowd. Aristarchus knew well. And he had learned well. Both Luke and Aristarchus knew the type of man that Paul was and the type of friend he was. And friends, I ask you, do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that you know would go right with you all the way to your last dying, gasping breath? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find that Paul, with his his appointment with the executioner, says only Dr. Luke is with me. I mean, that's friendship, isn't it? When your head is on the chopping block for the faith and your good friend, Dr. Luke, is standing there right there beside you. Do you have friends like that? If not, maybe it's because you're not a friend like that. That says that speaks volumes about the Apostle Paul. He had his critics. He had his detractors. He had people who hated him, thought he was irrelevant. He had all of that. But listen, he also had friends, and they were a true friend's friend. They stuck with him closer than a brother. They were David and Jonathan type friends. Now, you face difficulty in trial, are you going to have somebody standing next to you? Or are you going to be all alone because you've never stood next to anybody else during similar circumstances? Friends, cultivate good friendships. And as we go through the last part of the book of Acts and we look at, uh, in briefly, at Second Timothy, at the end of all of this, you're going to see the value of having good friendships. Cultivate good friendships. Anybody might say, well, i got my spouse. That's all I need. Just my wife. Just my husband. They're my friend. I don't need any friends other than my spouse. Well, what happens when your spouse faces death or difficulty? Then who are you going to have standing next to you? When your spouse dies. Cultivate good friendships. Gaius and Aristarchus, they take off with Paul. And look at verse 3. I think it was a special favor that was afforded to Paul because look what Luke tells us. The next day we put in at Sidon. So they make that little trip up the coast. They put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. He treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go into the city and receive care. Paul had some friends there. There was a church there. And by care, probably what is meant is provisions for the journey. Maybe monetary. But Paul was able to go into the city while the ship was loading and unloading. Julius allowed Paul to go into the city and to receive care from his friends. Enjoy some warmth and some hospitality and a hot cup of coffee and a piece of pie and enjoy all of those blessings and benefits. Care from his friends before the journey takes off again. Now here's what's interesting about this. This speaks volumes of Paul. Let me tell you why. His presence in that city could have sparked another Jewish riot. He was a high-profile prisoner. Everybody hated him and everybody knew he was on his way to Rome. All the Christians around there would have known that. And Paul's presence in that city presented a danger to himself. And Julius knows as the one who has been vouchsafed to get Paul to his destination, if anything happens to Paul, Julius is going to pay with his life. But Julius knows that Paul is not a flight risk. He knows Paul's not going to try and escape. He knows Paul's a man of integrity. He knows that he can trust Paul, even with his own life. And so Julius allows him to leave the ship and go into town and receive care from his friends. Do you think the other prisoners on board the ship got the same treatment? (laughs) No. It didn't happen. They kept him on board the ship and they locked him up. But Paul got special consideration. Why? Because everybody knew he was a person of integrity. He wasn't going to run. Not at all. He received the care from his friends. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the first indication to us that something is about to go sideways. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So you see on your map they're going up and they probably hugged that eastern tip of the end of the island of Cyprus because there was a large mountain region there and as the winds were blowing in across the Mediterranean, that mountain region would, would sort of shield them from the brunt of most of the winds. And so rather than going up the coast of Syria... And, uh, Cilicia, they sailed around the island of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Look at verse 5. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Now just a flashback note for you on three, three words there. Cilicia, Pamphylia, and Cyprus. If you're the Apostle Paul and you're sailing along that route, you can look off to the starboard side. For you landlubbers, that's the right. You can look off to the starboard side and you can see the coast of Cilicia. That's Paul's stomping grounds. He can see the port that he had sailed out of many times because Tarsus is right on the shore there. That's Paul's home. That's his shoreline. He's familiar with all of that. That's home to Paul. Then you continue along and on the left-hand side is the island of Cyprus. Do you remember what Cyprus was? Cyprus was where Paul and Barnabas first started their very first missionary journey. That's off to the port. For you landlubbers, that's the left-hand side. That's off to the port side. And they continued to sail along and they passed the regions of Pamphylia. Paul was familiar with Pamphylia too, and you know why? On the first missionary journey after leaving Cyprus, they traveled across the sea to Pamphylia, and there they disembarked, and it was there that Paul and Barnabas alone, because that's where John Mark abandoned them, Paul and Barnabas alone had to climb up the mountain regions into the regions of Galatia. And it was on that first missionary journey right after landing in Pamphylia that Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey. So I can almost imagine Paul saying to Luke, Hey, Luke, come here. Look, if you ever write a book someday about our journeys together and about our adventures together, I want you to know this is where I grew up. That's the port I sailed out of. This is my home turf. On the left here is Cyprus. That's where Barnabas and I first evangelized. And right over here in Pamphylia, you see the port over there with the dock? That's where John Mark abandoned me and turned tail and ran for home. And as Paul's traveling through all of that, I'd I'd be thinking in the back of my mind, if I were Paul, am I ever going to see my home again? I'm off to Rome. And what's he planning on after Rome? If he's executed in Rome, well, obviously he's not going to see home again. But if he's set free in Rome, where is he going? He wants to go to Spain. So as he's sailing away, all of these regions that are home for him, this is the last Paul is ever going to see of these regions. And it was the last that he would ever see of those regions, as far as we know. Look at verse 7. We had sailed slowly for a good many days. So they're working their way along the the southern tip of Asia Minor there. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off of Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further. So you see where they arrive at Nidus there? By the way, that's a cool name, isn't it? Nidus. Maybe it's Sinitus, Maybe it's Kinitus, It's C-N-I-D-U-S. I kind of wish that I had been more aware of that name when I was naming my children because I would have tried to push for one of them to be called Nidus. Cause that's just a cool name. Now, some of you are thinking, <laughs> some of you are thinking, Jim, your kids' names are weird enough. Why would you want Nidus? And I think it's because I have a, this reaction to all of the, the thoughts and imagination that went into my parents naming me, Jim. <laughs> so I want to name my kids something that's a little bit more creative. And I think Nidus would have been a good one. My wife is saying, man, thank you God that we were not in Acts when we were having our first children. So when we arrived with difficulty, they arrived off of Nidus, and the winds were contrary. Now listen, look at your map. They were aiming to go further west across the Aegean Sea over to Macedonia. That's the goal. They hugged the coastline and they worked their way along. They're wanting to work their way along all the way around and get over to Italy and land on Italy. That's the goal. But when they get to Nidus and they're facing the Aegean Sea, the winds are so contrary, so difficult, Luke says, that they began to sail south and they went down to the island of Crete. Now why would they do that? Because Crete had a series of mountain ranges on it and that would shield them from the wind that was was coming up that was contrary to where they wanted to go, that was pushing them the other direction. So they sailed down to the island of Crete under the shelter of Crete, off Salome, and with difficulty, verse eight, sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, if you were to use one word to describe the journey so far, what would the word be? Difficult, right? Start out in verse four. Hey, man, this is—we sail for many days. They're plodding along. Maybe days, maybe weeks are gone by. Listen, from the from uh, the point where they. Landed at Myra, where they changed ships, by the way. They changed ships at Myra. That's a little detail I forgot to leave out because I was so fascinated with the name Nidus. They changed ships at the city of Myra there, and they begin to travel south. And everything so far has been difficult with that little boat. When they get on the Alexandrian ship, the Alexandrian ship is a larger ship. Alexandrian ships, even by ancient standards, were enormous. They were 180 feet long. Now, this, I think, is 75 feet. This gymnasium is 75 feet this direction, or almost 80 feet from that wall to this wall. It's about 80 feet. So imagine uh, two and a half of these gymnasiums almost is what you have with one of these Alexandrian ships. An Alexandrian ship was one that sailed out of Alexandria, Egypt. See the little city down in the south there off the coast of Egypt? Egypt was the bedbasket of the Roman Empire, and they would take all the grain out of Egypt, and they would ship it up to Rome. And during the good summer months when the sailing was cool, they would just go straight across the sea right up to Rome. No problems. During the winter months when things were more difficult or during the dangerous months, in the late fall, they would sail up to Myra and then they'd try and work their way west across the coast over to Italy. But they couldn't do that because the winds were contrary. And so the Lord directs the winds and the ship all the way down to the island of Crete. Now there are 276 passengers aboard Paul's ship. It's an enormous ship loaded with grain, loaded with people, loaded with prisoners. Some people got cabins on board the Alexandrian ships. Most people had to stay up on top of the deck for the whole journey. So keep that in mind as you read later on. They didn't have cabins. They didn't go down and turn on the cable television and say, well, it's not good enough to be up on board the deck and I don't want to walk outside to the buffet line. It wasn't like that at all. They stayed up on top of the deck for the whole journey. So they get down, they sail around the coast of the island of Crete and they finally make Port at Fair Havens. Verse 8. One word to describe all of that? Difficult. And you get to Fair Havens, and whew, man, you breathe a sigh of relief. Huh? Man, we changed ships. We got off the of one ship. We're on a bigger ship. Things were going good, but not good enough. And now we have a change of course, and we finally made it to Fair Havens, and now the winds are so difficult that they with great difficulty get to Fair Havens. Probably a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks of time have gone by. It took many days, Luke says, at one of those legs to reach that destination. Now, verses 9 to 13, the voyage becomes dangerous. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, it we have gone from difficulty to what? Danger. It's now dangerous. And Luke tells us why it was dangerous, since even the fast was already over. But what's the fast referred to? The fast refers to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That happened in late September or early October. So what time of the year is this? This is fall. This is the beginning of the winter season. And it's now dangerous because the fall months are upon us and the winter months are closing in and sailing has gone from difficult to dangerous. Luke says because by this point the fast was already over. It was the, it was the desire and the drive of the captain of that ship to get that large Alexandrian ship from Mira over to Rome before the sailing season would come to an end. But here you are, the beginning of the month of October, the beginning of the month of October, and it has become so dangerous now that the shipping is coming to an end, and they're now realizing we've got to find a place to spend the winter. Between September and November, very little shipping was done, and only if the weather was permittable. From November to February, shipping stopped in the Middle East. Nobody did any of it. All the ships were off the sea for those months. Well, you realize now you're getting toward the end of the day, the difficult season. You're getting right into the dangerous season because the winds are contrary and the storms are coming up, and now nothing is going right for them. So now they want to stay at fair havens. Well, at least one of them does. Look at verse 9. Uh, sorry, verse yeah, verse 9. When considerable time has passed, so they're staying at fair havens. Time is passing, time is passing, time is passing. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the winds to be in their favor so that they continue the journey. But time is ticking away, right? Every day that passes, every day that comes up and the sun goes down and the winds are not favorable is another day of the sailing time that is lost. And considerable time is passing. And the voyage was now dangerous. Paul began to admonish them, verse 10, and he said to them, "'Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives.'" Now, that's wise counsel, is it not? It didn't take a rocket scientist to see that after all of the difficulty, finally arriving at Fair Havens. What does Paul want to do? Paul wants to spend the winter at Fair Havens. But here's the problem with Fair Havens. Fair Havens as a port was open to half of the compass. It was the least ideal place on all of the island of Crete to spend the winter. That was the only place they could get to. And when they, when they harbored at Fair Havens, they realized this was the worst place to spend the winter. And Paul's saying, this is the place we ought to spend the winter. We need to stay here because I perceive that there is going to be damage and loss of life and loss of cargo and loss of the entire ship. But verse 11 says that the centurion, Julius, was more convinced or more persuaded by what was spoken by the pilot and the captain than he was by Paul. Now Paul is no novice seaman. Second Corinthians chapter 11 was written two years prior to these events and in Second Corinthians chapter 11 Paul says, I've been shipwrecked three times and a day and a night I've spent in the deep. So how many times has he been shipwrecked? Three. He's no novice. He's been here before. He thinks, man, I see a pattern developing here, don't you? I see a pattern developing here. I've been on board the ship this many times. I've been shipwrecked three times. I know the weather. He knows the area. He grew up there. He knows what it's like. And Paul's saying it may be the least ideal place to spend the winter, but if we venture out from here, we're going to have loss of life. Now, is Paul concerned about his own life? Not, is he? Jesus said, you're going to Rome but Paul knows that even though he's guaranteed to arrive in Rome, there's no promise that he's not going to have number four on his record for shipwrecks. And he doesn't want to be shipwrecked enough. That's kind of an inconvenience, don't you think? To be shipwrecked on your way to Rome, that's what he's trying to avoid. We need to stay put. But the centurion listens to the advice of the captain and the pilot, and what are they saying? Fair havens is not an appropriate place to winter, If you look at verse 11, the centurion, more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul because the harbor was not suitable for wintering and the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Paul says we need to stay. The pilot and the captain say, no, we need to go to the next port. There's another one 40 miles up the coast, the port of Phoenix. The Port of Phoenix had a port, a harbor that faced northwest and a harbor that faced southwest. It was ideal. It was an ideal place to winter. It could kind of get in there and it was the best place for all for the ships to spend the winter. Then the centurion listens to Paul. Paul's advice. I say we stay here. And then he has the captain and the pilot giving him advice. Now if you're the centurion, which by the way, since it was a um, a Roman ship that was transporting Roman goods, they were under the employ of the Roman Empire. That makes Julius the highest ranking official on board the ship. He can make a call either way, which is why Luke says Julius was persuaded by the pilot and the co-pilot, because Julius could have said, no, we're staying, or Julius could have said, we're going, and everybody had to obey his orders. Now, if you're Julius, whose advice are you going to go with? Whose advice are you going to go with? You say, I go with Paul. No, you wouldn't. You say that because you know how the story ends. So of course hindsight's 2020. But if you're Julius, you're looking at it and you say, I got this old Jewish land-loving rabbi who spent most of his time without any sea legs. He's a good church planner, a good missionary. No disrespect to you, Paul, but I'm going to go with the pilot and the captain. They know the ship, they know the island, they know the ports, they know the weather patterns. They've done this before. They've been in similar situations. If you're on board a large airliner, and you begin to experience some difficulty and one of your engines cuts out and you get some yuppie businessman in first class who flies all the time and he's sitting there giving advice to the captain and the co-pilot and then you got the captain and the co-pilot giving their advice and saying what is it is that they want to do. Whose counsel are you going to go with? You're going to say, Hey, captain, listen to the yuppie businessman in first class. I think he has a good idea. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, Look, these guys have been in a similar situation. I'm going to go with their counsel. That's what Julius does. So they wait in the harbor at Fairhaven's Waiting, waiting, waiting. Look at verse 13. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing they'd attained their purpose. Ah, Moderate south wind. That's what they've been waiting for. See they're on the south side of the island of Crete. All they want to do is go 40 miles along the shore over to the harbor at Phoenix on the same island. They don't even have to venture out to high seas. They don't have to get away from the shore. And it's a moderate south wind, so it's coming up from the south that would keep them against the seashore. This is perfect. This is ideal. It's not the hard wind like they've been experiencing all along. It's sort of calmed down. They, this is our window. This is our opportunity. This is what we've been waiting for. A nice, moderate south wind from the south. This is perfect. In a couple hours' times, we can be at Phoenix. So they pulled up the anchor, and they set sail. Now, if you're Paul, and Aristarchus, and Luke, you've got to have that uneasy feeling in the pit of your stomach, right? Uneasy feeling. Uneasy feeling. Because you have this fear that they maybe have made the wrong decision. And if you are familiar with the Mediterranean and you're familiar with sailing and if you're familiar with the weather patterns down there and you're a first century reader and you're reading this right now, you're saying to yourself, this is a crapshoot. These guys are taking a risk. They're rolling the dice. This is risky business what they're setting out to do. And if you're Luke and Aristarchus, you're turning to Paul and you're saying, how many times have you been shipwrecked? That's not a detail that you want to share with the ship's company. You know what I mean? How many times have you been shipwrecked, Paul? Have you ever been shipwrecked before, Paul? Yeah, I've been shipwrecked before. Wow, really, how many times? Three. Three times. You must sail a lot. What are the odds that a guy would be shipwrecked three times in his life? You must sail all the time. No, only if I have to. Mostly I stay on land and travel on land, but occasionally I have to travel by sea, and so don't really travel by boat very often. Have you been shipwrecked three times? Three times. Paul, how many times have you been on board a boat? This makes four. (laughs) You don't want to say this joke has been on there far more than four times. But listen, sailors were superstitious. Remember Jonah? They're casting lots, praying to their gods. They're superstitious. Paul's been shipwrecked three times. And when they hear that anchor coming up off the shore and they're setting out for sail along the coast of Crete, if you're Paul, you've got to be saying, I've been in this situation before. This is not good. Not good at all. Because you know that Mr. Murphy might show up. Right? If something can go wrong, it will. That's what you're fearful of. Uh, Paul's not fearing for his own life. I think if Paul fears for anybody's life, it's Luke and Aristarchus and the men on board that ship. He's not concerned about himself. He knows he's going to Rome. And we know the end of the story, right? We don't even have to read to the end of the book of Acts to know that that's what Jesus promised Paul. You're going to Rome. Paul knows that. That's. That's a done deal in God's book. There's nothing that can stand in the way of that happening. His promise must be fulfilled. But if you're Luke and Aristarchus, there's no guarantee for their lives. There's no guarantee for the safety of the life of the boat. And Paul certainly doesn't want to go through a forced shipwreck. This is a 60-year-old man. That's quite an inconvenience for a 60-year-old man to have to deal with. A shipwreck during the winter months on the Mediterranean Sea. Well, we'll pick it up next week. We're out of time for today. We'll see what happens and what it is that goes sideways. We pick it up in verse 14 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder again this morning that you're in control of everything. You control the sea. You control the wind. You can still it. You can make it blow. There is no element. There is no atom. There is no molecule that is outside of your sovereign hand. And we know that even though we face difficulties, we know that even though we face trials and danger, that you are there to deliver us. You are there to comfort us by your sovereign providence. You are good. You do what is good for us. And we thank you that we have that promise and that confidence. Help us to remind, remember that this coming week, that we would remember that whatever it is we face in, your, in our lives, that you're in control. You're a good God, and we thank you for your watchful care over us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.